a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. I figure we could start by talking a little bit about cultural appropriation. I thought it might be interesting because, you know, Kelly and I have a very American perspective on it. Is it as a concept where you're at? Is it very prevalent? Uh, I'm from Zimbabwe, but I live in Australia. But in Zimbabwe, it's really common. How is it talked about in Zimbabwe? It's just most people being angry about other people adopting certain things from other cultures. They just like claim there's huge misrepresentation of like those kind of cultures. When people do certain aspects of your culture, it means they're embracing that culture. But other people think differently. If you're doing it wrong, then the whole purpose of you trying to embrace it become like meaningless. Mm, that's interesting. So would you say where you're at, there's a particular group that's more often accused of cultural appropriation? Yeah, we have dominant ethnicities. And oftentimes they try to imitate other like small cultures uh, in certain aspects. So those people from like small uh, ethnicities, because most of them, like they have a kind of tie to their culture to a point that they don't want to compromise anything. So most people then try to uh, imitate that. And then it becomes really, really offensive to them. Even like clothes show that they're appreciating a culture, but they don't use it accurately. I think the perfect example is women in the Zulu culture, they have this specific clothes that they do wear that represents their culture. And when you have other people from different cultures, the same country, the same country, but other people from different cultures, when they visit that area, they want to wear like the Zulu women. And that on its own, sometimes they do it wrong, like they wear it wrong or they wear it like on wrong occasions and so forth. And I don't blame them because they don't know. According to them, it's like if you're in Zulu, do what the Zulus do, but they are not doing it right. And within Zimbabwe, is it mostly groups that are within that country or is there a lot, you know, I'm thinking maybe South Africans or are there other groups that are typically the perpetrators of appropriation? We have different kinds of individuals that come from different areas. It's so diverse to a point that when you move from one city to another, oftentimes you want to try to adapt the, the environment that is there. So then people try to then do like the appropriation thing. The other one is just like, let's say, language. The white South African, like the Afrikaner, let's say they want to engage in conversation with the Zulu man. They try to speak in an accent that the Zulu man is speaking. But in some instances, they don't see the harm because they, they think they're trying to engage in a conversation. Because if you want to engage with someone most of the times, like if you speak in the accent that they do speak, the conversation becomes like much more meaningful. But the way in which they do it, it becomes like more of like insulting. So I do get the intent, but they don't see the problem. But most of us see the problem because we are on the receiving end. I can appreciate that because I'm a, I am was on, I lost it, but I was on day 187 of my Duolingo app in Spanish. And I'm always torn when I go to, there's a taco stand like a half mile from my house. And I'm torn between whether or not it would be appreciated if I were to try to speak in Spanish or if it would just be seen as insulting or condescending because my Spanish is so bad. And yeah, I'm not I'm not certain as to whether or not I should make the attempt or just, you know what, like speak in English and that, you know, they're used to it. They can deal with us not having any Spanish. I'd like to make an effort, but I don't know how it'll be received. I imagine it would probably be received well if you attempted Spanish. What I would caution you against doing is ordering it in English, but adopting like a Speedy Gonzalez accent when you did it. <laughs> is that closer? Is that closer, Mace, to what you're talking about, where the Afrikaners, they're not using a different language, but they're just adopting the accent. They're like mimicking. Yes. Yes. So it's like they speak in English, but they are changing the accent. It's interesting to me, too, because it, we, we just posted an episode not too long ago on in development in Africa. And one of the things that we pointed out is, at least in the U.S., and I think elsewhere around the world, there's a tendency to speak about Africa as a homogenous thing, right? Just the country of Africa. And when people talk about appropriation, 
There's also, I think the the easiest way to conceptualize it is, you know, whites appropriating from blacks or blacks appropriating from Asian, Asian appropriating from Latino, etc. It's interesting to hear in a country where there are different minority groups that are all from the same continent, that there's still a sense of appropriation happening there. Yeah, actually, I think it's because we have a lot of like ethnicities. I can say like we live in the same neighborhood, but we are different altogether. We have different culture, different religion, those kind of things. So it really does happen that people do appropriate each other, even though we're like from the same like town. Mm. This is for our listeners. This is Mace, by the way. Mace is the founder of the Royalty Pact Debating Academy which is an academy that seeks to enrich the minds and uplift debating in Africa. He's also the head coach of the Zimbabwean national debate team and a huge contributor to the development of accessible debating inside of Africa. We've asked him on to have a conversation, given his background as somebody born in Zimbabwe, currently living in Australia, and having a unique perspective on the topic today, which is whether or not the concept of cultural appropriation has been exaggerated. Mace, welcome to Indubitably. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us. This is going to be an interesting discussion, especially as we're getting close to Thanksgiving here in the United States, which is a holiday that is both widely celebrated and widely criticized. Yeah. How common is Thanksgiving as a celebration where you're from, Mace? I know it's uniquely American in origin. It's really common. Most people do celebrate it. But for me, I don't follow much holidays uh, like Thanksgiving, Halloween and those kind of things. But it's really, really common. Like people do take time and do celebrate. You've got too many debate things going on to celebrate. <laughs> That's true. I really love debating so much. So I spend my, most of my time doing debate related things. <laughs> well, today specifically, there's a lot of controversies around Thanksgiving and interactions between Europeans, Native Americans, but we're focusing on one in particular, which will be, as we mentioned before, cultural appropriation. Not exclusive to Native Americans by any means, but certainly affecting them in large part. To give listeners an idea of what to expect during this discussion, I am of the belief that cultural appropriation exists and is a problem. And I guess Josh maybe isn't. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying it is greatly exaggerated. Hmm. I'd like to see you defend that. Well, we should probably get to the debate before we kill each other, before it's even started. Mace, do you want to give people an idea of the format? Okay, the format is going to look like this. So we're going to have seven minutes of opening speeches. So one from the proposer and one from the opposer. And we're going to have five minutes of cross-examination. After that, we're going to have rebuttal speeches for six minutes. And after that, I'll ask the participants some questions for a maximum of 10 minutes. And we are going to have summary speeches for three minutes. And after all of that, Mace is going to let everybody know the reasons for why I have won this debate. You stop passion checks before they're written, Josh. <laughs> okay, to start the debate, we are going to invite Josh as the first speaker of the proposition. To start with, I'm not saying that cultural appropriation doesn't exist. I'm saying it has been exaggerated, both in form and scope, in our modern discourse. Like most things worth discussing, it cannot be boiled down to a black or white definition. There's a spectrum when it comes to the ways in which one culture can interact and intermingle with another. That ranges from, yes, appropriation at one end, to appreciation or evolution at the other. So really, the question in this debate is where exactly does that spectrum transition from positive, or the very least organic, forms of integration into the harmful sorts that should be qualified as appropriation, and to the motion at hand, does society's current definition get that right or wrong? Obviously, I'm here to say it's been gotten wrong. To make my stance clear, I think it would be useful to start with some examples of what qualifies as cultural appropriation and what does not. Firstly. There is a whole realm of unacceptable behavior that is not cultural appropriation. It is downright racism, plain and simple. This is anytime someone of any culture is intentionally mocking or insulting a different culture. The most obvious example of this would be wearing blackface, which is never okay, or dressing up or portraying yourself in a way 
that makes a caricature of a group of people. This is just racism. And to call it cultural appropriation does a disservice to the people affected by lessening the severity of what it is. So what is cultural appropriation? We recently reposted our episode on exploring indigeneity, where we looked at people pretending to be of native origin in order to sell products, books, win awards, etc. This is certainly cultural appropriation. Individuals, or probably more often corporations, posing as authentic representatives of culture to which they do not belong is appropriation. I'm happy to agree with that end of the spectrum. But to the motion at hand, there are loads of things that are currently accepted, at least by a large subsection of society, as cultural appropriation that are not. This ranges from the production and consumption of food or art, whether that be music, writing, movies. This could be the wearing of clothes, jewelry, or hairstyles. Assuming it is not done in a manner that I described above, all of these fall into categories of cultural appreciation, integration, or evolution rather than appropriation. Why do I think this is the case? Let's start at an individual level and work our way outwards back to the concept of a culture. And I'll take one of the best case examples for Kelly's side. Let's say a white woman posts a photo of herself on Instagram wearing a Native American headdress for the likes. How do I say that this is appreciation rather than appropriation? It's important to consider how this situation would come about. This woman, we'll call her Brittany, most likely saw a photo or watched a movie depicting indigenous people and thought to herself, damn, those headdresses are gorgeous. I bet I'd look amazing in one of those and get a boat ton of likes. Right off the bat, we can note that this is not coming from a place of maliciousness or hate. Is it superficial? Yes. But even if it is at a surface level, there's certainly a degree of appreciation happening here. And let's be real for a second. None of us know basically anything about the vast majority of cultures that exist in the world. And if we do, it was most likely not dates or names or the history of that culture that drew our attention to it. It was almost certainly something aesthetic. It was the headdress or ceremonial garb. It was the architecture or art. It was the food that got us interested in that particular culture in the first place. And our early interactions with any particular culture, I'm sure, were riddled with ignorance and potentially offensiveness. But as a society, we are so quick to conflate ignorance with maliciousness when that is rarely the case. And if Britney's sin is ignorance, how do we cure her of it? Proponents of the concept of cultural appropriation would tell her that she isn't allowed to participate in or consume a culture to which she doesn't belong. But since when has fencing off the world and erecting barriers between groups of people ever helped spread awareness or understanding? The idea of cultural appropriation reeks of rhetoric of purity and isolationism. This is our culture, and we refuse to share it for fear of it being watered down or influenced by a different group of people. And this brings us to the idea of culture in the first place. Culture is not a static thing. It is defined by changes over time and interaction and influence with other groups of people. Say Brittany's native headdress came from the Chumash tribe. It would have been influenced by other cultures the Chumash people interacted with at the time, like the Ohlone tribe. And that integration has now evolved both cultures in a positive way. Similarly, the integration of minority culture into the mainstream is a force for progress, not something to be feared. Culture is not a finite resource. This is not a zero-sum game. If Adele wears Bantu knots, there is not some woman in Southern Africa who has her head shaven. And the only reason I know what Bantu knots are is because Adele wore them. In fact, culture only grows as it is shared. Over time, culture across the world becomes richer and more robust. The same cultures who shared their hairstyle and arguably music with Adele are now repaid in kind by her own musical contributions to the world. The world is now a better place because of all of these interactions. All culture is constantly adapting, shifting, and growing as it is shared to the benefit of everyone it touches. And no one person or even generation could possibly claim the right to ownership over something so vast as culture. The culture of now is reliant on centuries of history, and the culture of here could not exist without the expansive journeys and interactions it has gone through. For anyone to say that a particular song or dress or food is theirs 
and that they will not allow someone else to sing, wear, or eat it is ego at its absolute worst. The real maliciousness in all of this are the people who attempt to gatekeep a culture that they happened to be born into but have no real claim to ownership over. They want their identity to be hoarded rather than shared or explored. This guarantees Britneys stay ignorant, people stay isolated from one another, and cultural enrichment is stagnated, all to protect against an appropriation that was never really that in the first place. Thank you very much, Josh, for that great speech. I'll invite Kelly to open the opposition case. Josh ends on something that I think encapsulates his whole position as being a bad one. Go figure, I'm going to oppose it. But Josh harps on this idea of these people are hoarding their culture instead of sharing it. They're walling themselves off. When he's talking about examples of people taking from these cultures without permission, sharing a culture has to be a voluntary act. It has to be something you consent to. It has to be something that you are enthusiastic about. There are plenty of ways that a lot of the people he's talked about, generally cultures, do invite people in and give people a chance to observe and participate and share. But taking Instagram photos wearing a war bonnet is not sharing in culture. It is abusing culture. It is appropriating culture. I'm going to first deal with a little bit of refutation of what Josh has said overall. And then I have an alternate view on what appropriation actually means that I think is more true to reality and allows for an understanding of what the consequences of appropriation are, which apparently we're not allowed to get mad when people do this anymore in Josh's world. There's nothing actionable about his stance here. People are not going to stop being mad about appropriation just because Josh says that only like Rachel Dolezal does cultural appropriation. So he starts with this idea of when is it appropriation and when is it appreciation? And I would say that that is entirely the scope of the marginalized people to define. If they are telling you that they are being appropriated, if they are telling you that they are being abused by white dominant culture, then they are the authority on the subject, not us. So I'm going to defer to the definitions of people who are actually the victims of appropriation rather than trying to twist and manipulate wording in order to fit my side of the debate. He's talking about how the only type of things that are actually appropriation are material misrepresentation, passing yourself off as somebody as part of that culture, and you're not actually part of that culture. So like Rachel Dolezal, Joseph Boyden, and like probably three other people. What an incredibly narrow definition, what incredibly advantageous side that Josh has given himself. He says that the things that are not appropriation are production of food, art, jewelry, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of it. Every single type of piece of jewelry that is produced that has anything to do with Native Americans is therefore not appropriation. What about mass-produced dream catchers from China that white people buy at truck stops? That's not really appreciative, in my opinion. It is spending $2 on a piece of crappy plastic that really undermines the actual history and the artistic value of real Native American artifacts. There are people in these communities who say, hey, we would love it if you bought our jewelry and our beadwork and all of our products. But these are the things that we would like you to buy that are representative of our art and sacred ceremonial objects. Please leave those to be for us because we use them in ceremony and have a really deeply imbued history with them. Why is it inappropriate for them to draw a line between which things can and cannot be taken by other cultures to consume as their own? And I take issue with the idea that Brittany saw this wonderful headdress and was suddenly inspired by the majesty of history. Let's be real. Brittany saw the headdress at Coachella and thought, I would look good in it too. She has no idea of the history, but ignorance of the law is never an excuse for a violation of the law. What we are talking about here is intention versus outcomes. All of these people who are taking from these cultures, Josh tells you, are doing it because of appreciation and because they are really coming from a benevolent place. That doesn't matter if people are victimized by it. If you are hurting somebody, even unintentionally, the onus is on you to stop doing it. I don't see why that's an unreasonable ask. People can take Instagram photos with a variety of things that make them look beautiful too, that don't hurt other people in the process. So with that, I think we want to talk a little bit more about what appropriation actually is, because I don't think we get a satisfying explanation from Josh today. 
Cultural appropriation is the inappropriate or unacknowledged adoption of an element or elements of one culture or identity by members of another culture or identity. I think the adoption is the important thing to have here because when Josh is talking about Adele wearing a protective hairstyle and saying that's the only reason he understands what these types of hairstyles are, he is attributing ownership of that type of hairstyle to Adele rather than the people who originated those types of hairstyles. What we're seeing right now, which is a pretty dangerous phenomenon, is how people are not only pulling from cultures in terms of like art and uh, food and jewelry or whatever else Josh is talking about, but actual physical characteristics, not to pass themselves off as another race, but to take from other cultures ways in which they are naturally coming into the world due to differences in geography and making them into fashion. We're going to call this the phenomena of everybody wants to be Black until the cops come. Because you see people like the Kardashians who are taking from Black women style, hairstyle, lip fillers and injections, Brazilian butt lifts, all of these things that they are vilifying in Black women culturally, and yet taking from and turning them into signifiers of white beauty. And then when it's no longer fashionable, they unbraid their hair, they dissolve their lip fillers, they get their Brazilian butt lifts reversed. They take from these cultures when it's convenient, and in no way are appreciating these cultures. And there is an outcry amongst Black women, especially in the United States, saying that we are being exploited and abused by people like the Kardashians who turn our biology into a fashion. What we're seeing a lot of is not only Instagram war bonnets and the stolen valor of taking a cultural artifact and turning it into the likes. We're also talking about language that is appropriated by gay white men from Black trans women in the 1970s and 80s that is now the basis of the entire drag culture in the United States. We are talking about people who destroy the authorship of culture, jewelry, art, artifacts, food, language, everything, and say that this is ours now. And then it becomes emulated to the point that white women now attribute ownership of Black vernacular to white gay men. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about appropriation. We're not just talking about Rachel Dolezal. We're talking about Kim Kardashian. We're talking about Every little gay boy in America who decides to take on a black scent. These are the things that are really materially dangerous. And for those reasons, I fundamentally disagree with what Josh has told you today. Thank you very much, Kelly, for that great speech. This marks the end of our opening speeches and I'll open the room for cross-examination. So your solution, Kelly, here is if I want to make sure that I'm not culturally appropriating, I want to ask the marginalized people to define that for me. There are currently over 4 billion people living in Asia. There are 574 native tribes in the United States alone. Who do I ask whether or not I am appropriating? I'm sorry it's so difficult for you to not offend people. But? No but. Maybe don't engage with it unless you know for sure. So are you suggesting that these over 4 billion people and over 500 tribes are homogenous and that they have a set answer? Or if not, how do I know which answer is appropriate? I don't see why you need to even try to take from a culture unless you know for sure. And there are plenty of people who do speak for their communities. There are advocacy organizations. There are meetings of the minds in a lot of these cultures that tell you which things are and aren't appropriate for your quote-unquote appreciation to consume. Hmm. You brought up hurting of people, uh, A, without saying how, and B, I'm curious, how do you solve that problem of pe people being hurt more effectively without bringing the perpetrators, quote unquote, into the community and fostering engagement and understanding? Well, this hurts people because it depersonalizes them. It turns them into caricatures of their race or ethnicity rather than as individuals, especially if they have an outcry against the types of appropriation and the white people who do it say, no, 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 this is appreciation. You just don't understand what I'm doing here. It's like well-intentioned um, because I know better than you what it means to actually be hurt in this context. That's so patronizing. It's infantilizing. It's dehumanizing. So how do I solve that? Uh, stop doing it? I don't know. There's no need in my life to like take upon Native American garb and wear it around like it's mine. Last, uh, second to last question here. What do Black women lose 
when white gay men speak in a similar fashion to them. They lose authorship. They lose the bookmark in history that attributes all of this to them. This has become now an adopted language by white women called glitter speak, where it's like, yes, girl boss queen, and they are not the originators of the language. And we've completely lost who they are unless you watch Paris is burning. We're losing the 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 founders of this history when we erase them because white women are adopting it. Mm, last question. Who's more racist, Aquafina or Lizzo? Not for me to say. I have some questions for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, your definition of appropriation is the only times it can actually happen or when people are misrepresenting themselves as being part of a, an ethnicity or culture that they're not actually from. Can you give me more than two examples of who's actually doing that? Oh, I, I'm fine with most of the examples that you brought up in your speech. I had two. We had Rachel Dolezal and Joseph Boyd, and I don't know anybody else who does it. Right. And those are the examples I think are cultural appropriation. I think the rest is being misdefined as cultural appropriation. Your examples of, uh, you know, glitter speak, for example, I think is something unique. And I think that's culture shifting. Uh, I agree with you. It's in a bad way in this case, but I don't think that's stealing an identity of a group of black women who still get to speak in whatever way they'd like to speak. So your position is seriously that cultural appropriation is real and only two people are doing it in North America. My position is that when people misrepresent themselves as legitimate representatives of a culture, that is cultural appropriation. I think there's plenty of corporations. I think there's plenty of people who are doing it. But in terms of the topic, I think the vast majority of things that have been labeled appropriation are not. What if I told you that what you're saying is cultural appropriation actually is closer to racial identity theft, and it's not actually appropriation, it is material misrepresentation. The cultural appropriation is not trying to be something that you're not, but taking from cultures and making them your own in a way that you have no right to. You disagree with that definition? I would say that's the whole point of the debate. I think your definition has shifted very far to the left to where you've identified things as appropriation that is just natural, organic shifting of culture uh, rather than some sort of malicious and damaging force out in society. And I said that it's not about your intention and it's about the outcome. Do you believe that it's true that even if you don't intend to hurt somebody and you do anyway, that maybe you should stop doing the thing that hurts them? I think if you're able to prove that there's actually harm being done, then maybe you win that argument. But I don't think you have or will be able to prove that. I think I already did, but okay. Okay, this marks the end of the cross-examination and we move to the rebuttal speeches. I think Kelly makes a pretty big mistake in her speech and then follows that up by not being able to answer my question during cross-examination with really outlining or highlighting one of the harms of cultural appropriation. And that is in an attempt to protect identities All she manages to do is whitewash and homogenize them. For her to say that I can ask Asians whether or not something is cultural appropriation, or I can ask Black women that something is cultural appropriation or not, is a bit silly considering the diversity that exists within those groups. I could choose three of them, and there would still probably be no agreement on what is or is not cultural appropriation. And suggesting I ask four billion of them takes that to the extreme. The other question that I asked her that I want to use to lead into my second speech here is who is more racist, Aquafina or Lizzo? And I want to talk about interactions between Black and Asian culture that I find really interesting here. Because neither identity is inherently oppressive or dominant. Both are incredibly rich when it comes to culture, from their history to music to food to fashion. And both exist now in America as an identity derived but unique from their places of origin. And the ways in which they interact with each other here makes for a fascinating case study. There are some pretty contemporary accusations of cultural appropriation going back and forth between both identities. First, Chinese and Korean American actress Nora Lum, Aquafina, has been criticized for her use of a black scent in the movie Crazy Rich Asians, as well as relying on black stereotypes and aesthetics in her rap career. Lizzo is similarly criticized for wearing a floral bodysuit and matching cape in a picture from a Rolling Stones photo shoot. In other photos, she takes on influence from geisha culture where she is nude, minus a flute, silver heels, and matching fans on her head. Both of these two have been enormously positive influences both within their communities and in society at large for empowering disenfranchised groups in terms of race, in terms of body positivity, in terms of gender and sexuality. Both are also part of groups 
that have been historically, according to the accepted definition, appropriated from. I find it hard to believe that any of this is done with anything other than appreciation and a desire for integration in mind. Both of these artists are looking to innovate and expand what is out there for us as consumers to engage with. And they're doing it by looking at the other cultures they interact with, taking the parts they feel inspired by, and creating something unique that doesn't belong to anyone. And this happens everywhere. If cultural appropriationists had their way, we wouldn't have the Wu-Tang Clan, we wouldn't have Afro Samurai, we wouldn't have K-pop. Okay, that one might be a good thing. But if Lizzo and Aquafina are quote-unquote stealing culture, the question I have is, who are they stealing it from? Kelly might accuse me of cherry-picking an easy example here when I talk about these two, although I think given the narrative around them currently, it's certainly an example that she has to defend as appropriation. But let's go to a more common one to explore my point here. Elvis, the king of rock and roll or of appropriation. He brings up a couple of really interesting ideas. First, the idea of appropriation implies a degree of intentionality and an active theft. But that's not how inspiration or culture works. So often it's passive influence and consumption. We are incapable of separating out the origins of all of our ideas, especially when it comes to those that are creative. Elvis grew up in a poor, mostly Black neighborhood in Mississippi and attended Black churches as a child. With a background in gospel music, how could he possibly produce his own art without drawing from that influence? And why should he have to? That is his childhood. He was part of those communities. With the hours he spent in the East Trigg Avenue Baptist Church, he has just as much a right to the music that he heard there as a Black individual who lived two states away in Georgia. Is culture defined exclusively by race? Is culture defined by geography? Is culture defined generationally? While proponents of cultural appropriation want to draw neat little boxes and segregate us all into them, making sure there is no cross-contamination, that is not how the world or culture works. The answer is that culture is all of these things, and we are all of those things. And to try and deny parts of ourselves because someone else thinks that, it's, that they own that particular experience of ours is silly. The question of who is that someone that thinks they own culture is the other interesting idea that Elvis helps us explore. Kelly says that people need to be invited into a culture, that culture has to be shared. But who shares it? There were plenty of people out there who were very critical of Elvis. Ray Charles was one of them. He says, Elvis was the king of what? I know too many artists that are far greater, singers like Nat King Cole, who got assaulted by white audiences for performing rock music while Elvis received widespread acclaim. He was doing our kind of music. Certainly, Ray Charles has a solid claim to be an ambassador of Black music. But so does B.B. King, who said, Elvis started to turn heads, including mine. He had everything, the looks, the talent. And when asked about accusations of cultural theft, he said, music is owned by the whole universe. It isn't exclusive to the Black man or the white man or any other color. So who do I ask? Do I ask Ray Charles or do I ask B.B. King? At the end of the day, there are millions of people out there whose lives have been enriched by culture that could be considered to have been appropriated. And the experience of those people and of the B.B. Kings who believe that culture is to be owned and shared by the whole universe are not invalidated by individuals who want to try and co-opt an identity that they see as theirs only and lock it away from the world. Thank you very much, Josh, for that great speech. We invite Kelly to do her repertoire speech. Josh gets himself into a little bit of a bind here when he tells you, hey, look, there are these marginalized people who marginalized other people. So that can't be appropriation because it can't happen like that. And it's also definitely from a place of appreciation and there's no harm done. Although we should know that after being called out for this substantially and potentially losing work for it, Aquafina finally stopped doing the very thing that we're talking about here. So if there was no problem with it, as a marginalized person appropriating marginalized people, then why would she have stopped? But the thing is, Josh is building on this idea that there's no consensus, right? That's ultimately what he's saying here. There are some people who think it's appreciation, some people who think it's appropriation. Since we can't know one way or the other what it actually is, we must therefore default to it being benign, harmless, and definitely okay. And I'd like to point out that that's actually a bit of a logical trap here, because his only examples of appropriation, the ones that he'll agree actually exist, 
could potentially be in dispute too. There are plenty of people who like appreciate and hang out with Rachel Dolezal and get their hair done by her. There are probably people in Canada, First Nations people, who like and appreciate Joseph Boyden. So does that mean because there's debate over whether or not what they're doing is appropriate, that therefore there is no such thing as cultural appropriation whatsoever? Perhaps in Josh's world, that's the case. But I would like to push him then on the harm. What exactly is the harm? If we err on the side of caution and say, perhaps we should just maybe not do the things that could potentially harm people, even though some people in those communities might not have a big problem with it. Josh pushes me on the harm a lot. He says, what's the harm in all of this? Why are people so hurt by the idea of XYZ type of thing being stolen from other cultures and, and, you know, reclaimed by people who have no right to them. And I'd say the harm exists in the psychological torment of it that people have been telling us for years is at the root of the issue. And that apparently is insufficient. That we lose authorship of all of these cultural things when we see Elvis Presley and call him the uh, originator of rock and roll when he wasn't. Uh, it, it's just a lie. It's a misrepresentation of the past. It is is a falsehood. And again, Josh only thought that the example of falsehood of racial representation was appropriation. And therefore, wouldn't it also be the case that anything that obfuscates the the history of these types of art that tells you that the wrong person is actually the right author? Wouldn't that also be considered a wrong as well? But I think there's more to it than just the community uh, frustration, the psychological harm, the fact that people are angry at it and want it to stop. Apparently that is insufficient. But I do think that it does quite a bit to the people who are marginalized when not only do they lose the authorship of these uh, pieces of art, the, the actual cultural identity, but when they're turned into caricatures, when they're turned into basically like figurines and easily mockable people, rather than given the full respect that they're, they're owed. Now, Josh talks a little bit about Lizzo taking on a geisha costume and the problems with that. Um, and apparently it's okay because she did it. Well, I would like to talk about that in particular because that's a very common thing for people in the West to do is to take uh, the geisha costume and turn it into something like a Halloween costume, which disrespects and misrepresents the entire history of what it is to be a geisha. It misrepresents them as being sex workers and not that there's anything wrong with being a sex worker, but that's not what geisha, the art itself is. It's a, it's a high art in Japanese culture that takes years of training and um, it's turned into a sexy Halloween costume, which makes all of the women who practice this art get lumped in with this idea that they're actually prostitutes. Again, there's nothing wrong with that, but if that's not what you are and that's what you not what you want to be known for, your voice saying, "Hey, I'm over here and I'm actually like a highly trained performer and super skilled at what I do." That that voice gets completely lost when people in white dominant culture in countries like the United States say, "Oh, yeah, but it's like a sexy Halloween costume and this isn't hurting anybody." It's hurting people because it's erasing people from the actual identities that they claim and they have rightful ownership to. And since there's a dispute over whether or not that's actually offensive and it's maybe appreciation, it's totally appreciation when somebody gets like blackout drunk on Halloween dressed like a geisha, I guess, then apparently there's no harm in it overall. And I've done insufficient work to show that that is actually disrespectful and harmful. But I would say that even if it is not provable that it is harmful, that I would still want to err on the side of caution. Because I don't see why I need to do any of the things in order to uh, be a fully fledged human that also might, you know, hurt other people in the process. Even the potential for harm is enough to avoid it. And Josh tells you that we lose something if that happens. We lose a lot of art if that happens. And I would contend that art is more important than your feelings. Art is a great conduit of expressing feelings. That's great. We wouldn't have the Wu-Tang Clan. That might be sad. But I think it's more important that we honor and respect the feelings of people who are demonstrating that they are hurt or could potentially become hurt that is more important than what we apparently lose if we stop appropriating culture. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kelly, for that great speech. We are now moving to the questions. The first question, Josh, uh, comes to you. 
There is much of a claim, mostly in your case, about how they are used diverse groups. So you're not sure we're going to ask about the culture, if people within the same culture have different views. But do you then believe that if there's an existence of harm, even if it's towards one individual and they believe that's appropriation, that should not be done? Well, I also believe that there's a harm for cultures not integrating and not interacting with each other. So if there are people within that population that believe their culture should be shared, I think that avoiding that process or avoiding those efforts for fear of other people who believe in appropriation is also a harm. So I don't think it's one side's being hurt and the other side is fine. I think that there's a potential for harm to both sides. Kelly, there's a push about the intent versus outcome throughout your whole speech. Um, I want to understand, do you believe that cultural appropriation can lead to appreciation? So the people who are engaging in cultural appropriation might develop an appreciation for the cultures. But I would say that's, one, not the only way that they can develop an appreciation for those cultures. They can do it in a way that is collaborative with the types of cultures that they are hoping to learn more about. And two, the appreciation that they are learning if they are culturally appropriating others does not negate the fact that they are very likely hurting other people in the process. It doesn't uh, cancel it out. Okay, great. Josh, sometimes people can use symbols or clothing of another culture without knowing that they are harmful or they may use them, they may use them in an appropriate way. Uh, like let's say, for example, a black woman using like an Indian symbol or an Indian trait in an, in an unharmful way. Do you think if there's a harm that exists, that individual should stop maybe using like those symbols? I think what's important is for the two groups, the person and then the culture that they're, quote, appropriating to have a conversation with each other. And I don't think that happens if one culture tries to isolate itself off from the rest of the world as opposed to having some sort of integration there. I, I think that oftentimes what's called appropriation is a good first step to get cultures interacting with each other, and then they can have conversations like that. So I see appropriation as the solution to a lot of the problems of ignorance that Kelly's worried about. Okay, great. Uh, Kelly, who is mainly affected by appropriation? Do you think minorities can appropriate a culture from a dominant group? For example, um, an African appropriating, like, let's say, a Western liberal. Do you think then that kind of appropriation can lead to harm to, like, white people at that point? Well, first, I'd, <laughs> I'd challenge anybody to say that white people have a culture that can be appropriated in the first place. But I think that cultural appropriation follows a lot of the same power dynamics that racism does, that in order to steal from another culture, you must therefore have some sort of power over that minor culture, marginalized culture, culture that doesn't have enough uh, uh, legal status in a country to defend itself, etc. So yeah, I do see that there are a lot of cultures around the world that do things like become a little bit more Americanized or take on like British dining habits and things along those lines. But as far as what appropriation means, I think that there is necessarily a power imbalance and a lack of consent at place here. We colonized the world and gave them all of our dishes, right? But the rest of the world didn't then therefore consent to having all of their spices stolen and turned into different dishes, to put it like in a really overly simplified way. Josh, uh, your question. You claim that in most instances, culture can grow if it's shared. That is to say, like, based like the integration of culture, sort of like isolation. But do you think those groups should then have their culture uh, integrating in instances where, like, they believe when people copy or appropriate the culture, it becomes harmful to them? So, like, for example, Red Indians may assume their culture is being appropriated. But because there's a narrative that says we can't isolate culture, then those people should then be coerced into, you know, that kind of thing. The thing is here that these people are going to be integrated into a culture whether they want to or not. So in the United States, for example, indigenous people are affected by mainstream culture, whether that be policy ramifications, whether that be particular laws that are passed uh, that, that directly impact them. 
So they are integrated in the culture, whether they want to or not. The question is, do they find ways of educating that culture on them and their needs and their beliefs and their traditions so that these sorts of policies can happen in a productive and knowledgeable way? Or do they try and isolate themselves and have a culture that is making decisions on their behalf that knows absolutely nothing about them? I think that's more harmful than a girl drunk on Halloween wearing a headdress. Okay, great. Kelly, uh, do you think culture evolves? I absolutely think that culture evolves. And I do think that cultures learn from each other and can develop alongside each other collaboratively. I don't think that it needs to be a forcible interaction like Josh seems to suggest. Okay, great. This is the end of my questions. So we're going to move to the summary speech. She started with Kelly. At the end of this, there are a couple of things I'd like to point out. First, and I'm not going to get into this too much because it's such a large conversation, this emphasis that Josh has on integration, whether or not the groups want to be integrated, is extremely uh, problematic. And I think that we have to acknowledge that forcibly integrating groups that don't want to dilutes their culture and basically makes white dominant culture their culture. I'm thinking about residential schools for Native Americans and First Nations people. I don't like where that rhetoric is going. I don't think that's what Josh means by this, but that's the kind of rhetoric that has been used to justify that sort of thing. So how do we become culturally integrated? How do we get along with each other and learn to appreciate each other in a way that does not appropriate? I think that is the question that Josh is seeking an answer to because it seems to be the important thing he's hinging everything on. There's so much that we as white people can do to learn from all of these different cultures in a way that does not take from them without their consent and doesn't abuse and marginalize them. We can read books by all of the prominent authors in those communities. We can listen to the debates within those communities about the things that they value, the initiatives that they want to put forward, the ways that they want to be represented, and recognize the plurality of voices. We can go to museums that they've put together and run themselves. We can return their artifacts to them. We have a whole episode on that. We can take stock of everything that they say about themselves and how they wish to be represented and work with them in a way that they want to be worked with. There are plenty of people in the United States who are of Native American descent who do beadwork and want to sell their beadwork to white people. They want to sell specific non-ceremonial beadwork to white people. And I think it would be great if we threw our money at them and said, give me all the beadwork you're willing to sell me. Those are the types of things that we can absolutely do in a way that appreciates the culture, in a way that makes the exchange consensual. It is not about saying we can never learn from another culture, never touch another culture, never speak to another culture, because every type of interaction is either appropriation or not. What we're talking about is a way to make sure that every interaction is done with the consent of all the people who are involved. And that's not difficult to do. It's very easy to walk through life and not offend people. It's very easy to walk through life and not take something that someone else has created and make it your own and claim that you are the author of that. You are the cultural uh, touchstone for that. It's very easy to not be a Kim Kardashian. I do it every day. I think that what we need to value here is what the wishes of the people who are victimized by appropriation are. And yeah, they may have some different opinions, but what's the harm of erring on the side of caution and saying, maybe I don't need to wear that headdress in this Instagram photo. I see no harm in it. And for those reasons, very proud to oppose. Thank you so much, Kelly, for that great speech. We'll invite Josh to conclude the debate. Kelly said that intent doesn't matter, only harm. Firstly, I don't think that's true. The implication of appropriation is that it's rooted in hate. That's an intent. That's where a lot of the harm comes from. Someone takes your identity and ridicules or insults you. First of all, if that's done intentionally, I agree. That's racism. And as I said in my first speech, that goes way beyond appropriation. But if that's not the root of a person wearing an indigenous headdress, then I think the worst claim you can level the appropriator is that of ignorance. I don't think that it takes anything away from the original group who is still able to live, celebrate, express, and create their culture in the same way that they always have. As I said in my speeches, culture is something that is constantly evolving and growing 
and is not undermined by anyone else participating in it, regardless of how clumsily they do it. So I don't buy the claim of harm here. The other problem, though, is even if you prove that ignorance does lead to harm, how do you solve it? Kelly says, well, just don't appropriate. I'll let her in on a secret, though. Ignorant people are ignorant whether they're wearing sombreros at Halloween or not. And this has ramifications beyond losing ownership over a particular hairstyle. What she calls appropriation, I call the solution to that ignorance. Find a way to incentivize people to integrate with other cultures. And oftentimes that starts at a surface aesthetic level. Is it less than ideal? Yes. Is it oftentimes expressed in ignorant ways? Yes. But is it realistically the way that tangible and meaningful engagement usually starts? Yes. And that's a good thing. Forcible integration is not at all what we're talking about. Beyond the sense that when two humans of any culture have any sort of interaction with one another, they become integrated to some degree. On a personal level, every time two people have a conversation, they have both been changed by each other. The same happens on a cultural level. I think this is a force for good. The fact that there are people out there who want to stymie that and so slap a label of appropriation on it doesn't concern me. I don't believe any individual can claim ownership of a culture that multitudes of people, places, and generations have contributed to. And hopefully as we realize that appropriation has been exaggerated, that evolution can be continued. Amazing. Thank you so much, Josh, for that great speech. And thanks to both of you. It was a great debate. I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot. <laughs> I will take two to three minutes just to look at my notes and I'll come back with the oral adjudication. Okay, I'm ready. I'm going to do this into three parts. So the first part, the first contention in the debate was the intent versus the outcome. What side? You have good push here of like whether or not we should prioritize the intent or the outcome. So what we came from opposition is like to say in most instances, even if like you have like a good intent, in most instances you may have like bad outcome. That is to say, um, they give this analogy to say just because you don't know anything about the law doesn't mean really when you commit a crime that should be excused. So if the outcome is bad to like the minority themselves, then that intent then doesn't really hold much value. Um, and what we get from proposition on that idea was to say in most instances when people appropriate, it's not like they really want to harm these kind of minorities. In most instances, it's just like a sense of appreciation. So now when I weigh those two ideas up, from opposition, I do believe that if something is harmful, uh, it can cause a psychological harm. Even if it didn't know that it might cause that harm, then on its own, it shouldn't be done. At the same time, from proposing, I do agree as well that sometimes your main idea or your main purpose is just like find a way on how you can integrate with that culture in and of itself. So that clash of intent versus outcome was left hanging. The second part then was on whether or not appropriation can lead to appreciation. This is very important because most of the debate was underlying, like under this theme. What we get mostly from proposition is like to say cultures evolve. And because they evolve, in most instances, we need to make sure that people do have conversations about those things. This goes back to the idea of like people using culture without knowing, like the intent versus outcome. To say, if you then have conversations around those kind of things and you don't isolate yourself, it means there's a proper understanding of your culture. People are much likely going to then integrate with that culture, understanding the whole concept of it. Opposition concedes that appropriation can lead to appreciation, but they say there are different ways on how you do this. The only problem with this is they don't do a way up on even if you have different ways that can lead to, to appreciation. Why is appropriation the bad root at that point? If it can create things like discourse that can avoid things like isolation of certain cultures, if it can allow people to understand fully about like, different cultures as a whole. So we're still unsure why different methods that can lead to like cultural appreciation are much more meaningful than cultural appropriation at that point. Um, the third thing is like the harm versus benefit. I think this is where 
not much of the debate, but I think most of the ideas as well, to say from opposition, there is a huge push about like the harm that comes with appropriation. This may look like, let's say, people losing like their own identity. In most instances, where they talk about the exploitation of black women, for example, the Kardashians using like black women hair, and when they think it has lost, like let's say, some value, they then change it and like go back to their own Brazilian and so forth. This is a harm that opposition like tries to point out. What proposition then pushes here is to say, look. Even if like there may exist some forms of like harms, in most instances, there is a difference in transitioning this thing into like harmful uh, part. I think that from their introduction, where they draw the line about things that are harmful, for example, wearing black faces and so forth, that is like not the appropriation that they're trying to defend at that point. So I think like those kind of extreme harms, they were already pushed out because they thought like that's racial biases in most instances, not appropriation. So when I'm looking at the actual harm of appropriation that proportion then consists to and why that is meaningful, this is where they talk about when people appropriate, in most instances, they allow the culture to grow. Why? Because there's shared culture that integrates with other cultures. Therefore, it means that kind of organic shifting of culture is something that is important. And when people do appropriate or appreciate culture in that instance, that organic shift is something that they, that they do defend at that point. So at the end of the debate then, I, I ended up believing that cultural appropriation has been over-exaggerated. Thank you, Mace. Your check will be in the mail. <laughs> it should be arriving shortly. At least you can admit that you bribe a judge now and again. After you won our last debate, I had to make sure that I didn't lose two in a row. Mm, that's true. Uh, Mace, thank you for that adjudication. I'm not just saying that because I won. I wanted to give you a second here at the end. I know that you're super active, especially uh, in Zimbabwe with the national team and uh, a lot of other efforts just on the continent of Africa in general. Was there anything you wanted to talk to our listeners about? Maybe something they could look up if they're interested in debating on the African continent? Um, yes, I think like if they can check our Facebook page, uh, Zimbabwe National Debate Team, is where they're on Facebook are there on Instagram. We always post a lot of updates, so it may look like things like tournaments that we are having. We host a lot of schools tournaments that we have like our high school students interacting. Um, if they're a university debater and you want to be involved in universities, you can check our uh, other Facebook page, the Royal Park Debating Academy. That focus is mostly on tertiary debates. Um, we are there on Facebook and also we are there uh, on Instagram. We also do some coaching as well. So if you want to be involved in like competitive debating and you are not experienced, you can just click a message on like our Facebook page, the Royal Park Debating Academy, and we do offer free sessions. Like all coaching is free. And I know Kelly and I don't agree on cultural appropriation, but I think we can both agree, especially for high school students, it's really neat for them to have the opportunity to debate in international level competition and just interact with kids from other countries in, in that way. Yeah, I think it's really beneficial if they do debate. I saw it with the students that I coach, the Zimbabwe debate team, because before we just like used to debate in Zimbabwe, if we go far, it would be like neighboring countries like South Africa, Botswana, Namibia. But ever since we had that transition to online debating, where now they can debate with people across the globe, they don't only grow in terms of debating skill, but they also grow in terms of their social skills, their, uh, the way in which like, they hang a certain aspect. You can even tell with their interactions that there's a little bit of understanding of different things just because of interacting with different people from different backgrounds as well. Well, despite my crushing loss, Mace, I do appreciate so much that you came here to to judge us today. And I really appreciate your thoughtful adjudication. I culturally appreciate you. Josh, you're fired. Thank you so much, Kelly and Josh. I appreciate you guys for inviting me. And we'll put links to everything that you just talked about on our Facebook and uh, Twitter accounts at IndubitablyPod, as usual. So if you're interested in checking out uh, some of Mesa's efforts, or again, debating on the African continent in general, you can find that there. With all, all that said and done, Josh, are you still feeling like you're in the spirit of Thanksgiving this year? Are you can have some pie? I am fine celebrating Thanksgiving minus the historical context and minus the 
capitalist <laughs> um, appropriation of it, I still think it's a, it's a good chance to sit back and reflect on what we're appreciative of over the last year. And half pie. And yeah, probably too much pie. Mace, you got to try. I mean, I know you say you don't celebrate it, but the food, man, is um, worth celebrating. I love eating, so maybe I'll just try. <laughs> hey, something we can all agree on. <laughs> we all agree on time. <laughs>